0: Welcome to The Practice Podcast, a show created by lawyers to help lawyers in life and business without all the complicated lawyer language. Let's welcome Bast Amron founders and your hosts, Jeff Bast and Brett Amron. Hi, this is Brett Amron. I'm Jeff Bast, and this is The Practice Podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest. Special on indeed. Mr. Scott Brown. Hello, Scott. Hey, guys, how are you this morning? Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Wonderful. Fantastic. Thanks. Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit to our listeners about your background, who you are?
1: Great. Thank you. I am a, uh, a native Floridian, born and bred in uh, North Miami, grew up here, left for a few years to go to college at Emory, and then came back to Miami. I started my career in a family business. I have a finance background, BBA from Emory and finance, uh, wound up in a family business for about 10 years. And then uh, as a result of uh, a variety of factors, uh, found myself fulfilling my dream to go back to law school, ended up going back to law school, graduated in 2003 and began a second career as a uh, insolvency
2: lawyer in 2003. And we were so happy to have you join us. It's six or seven years now, right? Seven years since you're joining the firm. Time really does fly when you're. We're we're so lucky to have you join us. And so we're so happy to have you here. And Scott, really, you have, and we talk about this all the time, right? Have this real passion for the law, right? Like you really love to read. Case decisions and learn about not just sort of national stuff, but what local judges are doing. You really, really I do. Love it.
1: I am suffer from some perhaps nerd affliction of loving to read opinions. Uh, I like reading Supreme Court opinions. Probably in another lifetime, uh, I might have wanted to be a con law professor because I really do enjoy. Not too late, Scott. That. <laughs> Thanks. Not too late. Thanks. You can be a professor. Get, getting rid of me and sending me over to uh, Con Law, huh?
0: I, I'm not, we're not getting rid of you. You can be an adjunct professor while That's you
1: right. work. But you're, right Scott, you, I don't
0: think you mentioned that you're a trustee. I am. I you am a, chapter, a panel Chapter 7 trustee
1: I'm, here in what the what Southern is, District of Florida. What does that mean? How do you, be, how do you become a trustee? So uh, the Chapter 7 trustees fall under the auspices of the Office of the United States Trustee, which is an arm of the Department of Justice. Chapter 7 trustees are appointed in each district and are charged with the duty of investigating a debtor, whether it's an individual debtor or a corporate debtor's pre-petition financial affairs, and trying to marshal and recover assets and monies, uh, bring claims for the benefit of creditors of the estate. In each uh, district in the United States, there is a standing panel of chapter seven trustees, as I said, that's run by the Office of the United States Trustee Division of the Department of Justice. And every so often, once in a great while, the panel opens and they select new members to join the chapter seven trustee panel. I was fortunate enough back in 2011, the panel opened here in the Southern District of Florida. At that time, I had been uh, practicing for about seven years in the insolvency field, concentrating almost exclusively on fiduciary representation. And uh, when the panel opened back in uh, 2011, they had about 125 or 150 uh, applicants. It was a pretty thorough process. And ultimately, they selected nine people to join the panel among the three counties of Miami, Miami Miami-Dade, Palm Beach, and and Broward. And and I was fortunate enough to have been chosen through that rigorous process to become a panel Chapter 7 trustee. And I have been doing that for the past nine years in addition to my regular legal work and additional fiduciary roles that I'm sure we can chat
2: about. So I know there's different kinds of Chapter 7. There's the consumer and there's the corporate From what you've seen, I mean, I'm not asking you for specific numbers, but what you've seen generally, what are the percentages of what you get in terms of consumer versus corporate cases?
1: Okay. The overwhelming majority of chapter seven cases that are filed Mm -hmm. are individual cases. Yeah, I think that is true nationwide. It's certainly true in South Florida where we don't have a lot of large national companies headquartered that would choose to file bankruptcy here in the Southern District of Florida. But overwhelmingly, Chapter 7 is probably 98% of all Chapter 7s are individual cases and corporate cases, while interesting and exciting and providing great recovery opportunities and a lot of fun, are really the exception to the rule in Chapter 7.
2: And right. what is chapter seven? What's I know you mentioned chapter seven and filing bankruptcy and stuff, but like, what is chapter seven generally?
1: Generally, chapter seven is liquidation. There's generally three chapters that folks think of, which are chapter seven, which is liquidation, chapter 11, which is generally thought of as reorganization for corporations, although individuals can also file chapter 11 reorganizations. And then there's chapter 13, which are individual reorganizations. Some folks that um, are above the debt limits of Chapter 13 end up filing individual Chapter 11s. Uh, I say there are th- those three, 7, 11, and 13, because those are generally the three. There are also Chapter 9s that municipalities can file, and uh, Chapter 12s, which are for family farmers, or for farmers in general, actually.
0: And Scott, so you, I mean, you said there are
1: nine trustees, is that right? Nine in the Southern District of Florida? No. At the time the panel opened in 2011 and I was appointed, they appointed nine additional trustees to the panels among the three counties. There are probably 20 or 21 panel trustees in the Southern District of Florida across the three counties right. presently. So how does it work? How do you
0: become a trustee? How do you become a trustee for a particular company or individual? Sure.
1: How do you get appointed in a case. Sure, as to chapter 7s, every time a chapter 7 case is filed be it a corporate case or an individual case, it's a blind rotation filing, they're electronically filed, a random judge and a random panel trustee is assigned by the clerk's office computer instantly when the case is filed. And that random assignment is to prevent folks from uh, trying to either select their judge or select their trustee.
0: So you've been been on the panel in Broward County and you're moving to Miami-Dade County, right? Correct. So if if a case is filed in Miami-Dade County, you would be one of however many trustees randomly appointed. And, and what happens when you get appointed? Just give us a real quick overview of like you know what you do. Sure.
1: And for the moment, we're just going to focus on individual cases, which are uh, 99% of cases. I'm assigned cases. There's a 341 meeting, which is the first meeting of creditors that gives both the trustee and um, creditors the opportunity to examine the debtor and ask questions of the debtor regarding his or her pre-petition financial affairs. So cases assigned about once every few weeks, there is a meeting of creditors uh, during which there's a four hour block and I'll hold 25 to 30 meetings of creditors. They each last about six minutes. And I ask a variety of questions to determine whether or not the case should be administered or whether there are truly no assets in the case, and the debtor moves on to get his or her discharge, and the creditors receive no distribution in that case, which is the overwhelming majority of cases.
2: And if you determine that there are assets to administer, what's the next step after that?
1: The next step is is investigating what assets there are to administer, figuring out how to monetize those assets, mm-hmm. and moving forward with my investigation. Sometimes it's as simple as a Debtor, an individual debtor may have assets that exceed allowable exemptions in the state. So they might be five or $6,000 over-exempt. There's a settlement between the bankruptcy trustee and the debtors. Other times, it can be very complex. Uh, I'd need to hire counsel. i need to hire a forensic accountants and do a thorough investigation in order to figure out the actions to bring in the assets to recover.
2: And the goal there is to, again, if there's an asset to administer, tangible asset to administer, to try to liquidate that asset for the benefit of the estate and its creditors. And then to the extent that there is a litigation claim, right, your counsel, your forensic accountants would uh, assist in building that claim, pursuing it and trying to gain a recovery for the creditors in the estate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And so what is the, just briefly, what is the difference between a seven appointment and an eleven if you get appointed as an eleven trustee, what are the differences sure. just briefly
1: seven appointments in a chapter seven case, as I said, it's a random appointment based upon an electronic wheel that happens at the time of filing. a chapter eleven is a reorganization in which the debtor is a debtor in possession and runs the affairs of the debtor in possession as And there is no trustee generally. Only if cause exists to appoint a trustee would a Chapter 11 trustee be appointed. And in that case, the Office of the United States trustee would appoint that trustee upon order of the court directing the appointment of a trustee. And that is not blind. That is based upon a variety of factors, including input that the United States trustee seeks from various stakeholders and interested parties, as well as trying to match a particular case to the trustee that they believe is best suited to administer that case. And when you're appointed
0: as Chapter 11 trustee, you're basically taking over the operation of an operating business that's under the supervision of the court in Chapter 11, right? correct? Absolutely correct. So yes. The debtor in possession has been removed and you get appointed and now it's your job to operate and and you're, I always think that you're, you know, you're one of the best suited trustees for that type of business because you have a business background okay. and you're a lawyer. So that's challenging. But you mentioned one other thing that I think, or maybe Brett mentioned it, It was about litigation. So I think it's important for people to recognize. A lot of people may not realize that when they file a, a chapter seven or a chapter 11, the assets that are part of the estate are not just what's there on that day, but there's also a look back period, right? Correct. Know? I'll just briefly
1: about that. Sure. And I think what you're probably referring to is what we hear in the press as clawbacks or avoidance claims. And under bankruptcy code, trustees get the unique ability to sort of play Monday morning quarterback and take a look back at what the debtor, be it a corporate debtor or an individual debtor, has done with his, her, or their funds and assets over a two-year period under the Bankruptcy Code four-year period under Florida state law, and if assets were transferred at a time that the debtor was insolvent or with the intent to hinder land or fraud creditors, or if certain creditors were preferred over other creditors, be they corporate entities that put pressure on a corporate debtor, or mom and dad who were repaid from a debtor's tax refund to the detriment of American Express or MasterCard, Um, the trustee has the right to go in and sue those recipients of those improper transfers and recover those funds to bring back into the estate for the benefit of distribution to all creditors on a pro rata basis.
2: So I want to jump back to a world some of us may not remember, and that is prior to March of 2020. (laughs) Pre-COVID. Pre-COVID. seems like 10 years ago and ask you what you were seeing uh, and your colleagues, fellow trustees, were seeing in terms of bankruptcy filings and trends bankruptcy filings. Were sure. they up? Were they down? Were the consumer up? Were the corporate up, down? You know, What were you seeing pre-COVID in 2020 or at the end, starting at the, I guess, maybe to right-size sort of the pool, maybe Q4 of 2019 and then Q1 of 2020? Sure. Thanks, Brett. I think bankruptcies overall have been on a downward
1: trajectory over the last number of years. You had the recession in 2008 after the financial crisis, and you had a slew of bankruptcies. And since that time, there's been a progressive downturn in the number of bankruptcies as the economy has improved, as real estate prices have improved, as interest rates have dropped, there were less and less bankruptcies. Folks were able to generally get by, companies were able to borrow cheap money, and bankruptcies have been on an overall steady decline over the last four, five, six years. Are you starting to see that change now, post-COVID? I am not starting to see the change yet. In fact, um, numbers that were just recently released, both nationwide and here in Southern District of Florida show that we are still down year over year from June 30th of 2019 through June 30th of 2020. But as a result of COVID, we're seeing a spike in corporate cases on a national basis over the last few months, and you see the high-profile cases, and, and as a so, result. Of, uh,
0: I was going to yeah. so over, overall, <laughs> Go overall cases are down. Overall cases are down, but business cases are up.
1: Recently, yes. Absolutely. Right, recently. And I,
0: and I would submit that some of that, you always see a little bit of a lag in our industry, in the insolvency world, in Chapter 7, Chapter 11. And some of this has been propped up by, I always call these the S's, sympathy, shock. And so I think a lot of lenders were taken by surprise. You know, A lot of people were just shocked by this. And most lenders, lessors in the beginning were sympathetic, were free, were giving out forbearance um, relatively freely in the beginning. And then businesses and individuals were propped up by stimulus. But now as that starts to wear off, I think Q3 and Q4, mostly Q4, we're going to see a
1: big spike. I agree completely. I think it, it probably isn't going to be. Uh, if I had a crystal ball, that would be great. I don't. I think that uh, it'll probably be. My gut would say Q1 as a, of 2021, as opposed to Q4 of 2020, because you've still got money floating through the economy. You've still got for. Uh, you, you've still got moratoriums on a statewide basis, certainly in Florida, on evictions and foreclosures, you still have landlords that are are working with folks, banks that are working with folks, stimulus money that is still out there, although coming to a halt. So I think generally, you often don't see filings Quite as strong in the November and December pre-holiday period, traditionally, and at least on an individual basis for individuals, we usually see folks wait until after the holiday period has passed. And if they can, until after they've received tax refunds in early February or March before they file Chapter 7 bankruptcies.
2: And I'm sure there's still some of the folks that are holding out hope that the new stimulus package comes on. I think people, and rightfully so, might wait extra time before deciding to file a bankruptcy. Uh, It's a big step. It's not simply just oh, I file and then I'm done. It it is a a process that maybe a lot of people don't know. It's an extensive process. And I think what we saw, you mentioned the, the 08 recession, right? What we saw in 08 was a lag, a considerable lag. And I don't think a peak in terms of the insolvency world. At least a year or two, if not a little longer, after the sort of the recession kind of kind of hit, right? I mean, do you do you see that, or do you think that may happen here? Yeah, I think it's definitely there's definitely going to be a lag, and I think it's definitely the
1: peak that everyone talks about coming. I think is is certainly a ways off. Like I said, I think filings will start gradually increasing come Q1 of 2021. We don't know where COVID's going li- to leave us. We don't know. Uh, What's going to happen with closures, with businesses coming back online, whether folks are going to be able to make it, uh, and whether they seek alternatives to bankruptcy uh, on the corporate side, be they uh, assignments for the benefit creditors or receiverships or various other avenues. But I do think it's going to be a little while before we see that that uptick in in cases. I, I will say that the cases that I have seen, certainly on an individual basis, speaking of personal bankruptcies... People that are filing now and people have been filing over the last number of months since COVID hit are really people in desperate need of help and of a fresh start. And, you know, I I say this all the time to people, you know, we all read about these um, bankruptcy cases where you have Ponzi schemers and fraudsters and and interesting and crazy scenarios, but 95, 97% of individual bankruptcy filings are people that have just come down on their luck, have had problems, have tried to stave off bankruptcy, and are really looking for that fresh start. And what I'm seeing here are a lot of people that just have completely tapped out every source of dollars, that have no money. And then in many cases, this is a second cycle. You can get a discharge as an individual once every eight years. And I'm seeing a lot of folks now Coming in for second bankruptcies um, that have they got a discharge eight years ago and are back in the bankruptcy courts again today. It's, it's it's unfortunate and it's and it's it's sad,
0: but it's a reality. And especially in this climate where there's no really geographic or other limitation on the scope of you know the impact of this pandemic, sometimes you'll see it. You know, in two thousand eight. It was driven by real estate and there's always a domino effect The real estate. You know, residential real estate was having, was struggling and there's a domino effect that it impacts that commercial and then other businesses. But here it's really across every industry and and there's no geographic limit to it. But bankruptcy is designed to give people a second chance. And that's kind of what our system is premised on is giving, you know, the honest debtor a fresh start. I'm glad that you're an important part of that. Scott, let me ask you, because there's probably a lot of non-bankruptcy lawyers out there maybe listening to this, and maybe they're talking to a client who's involved in litigation or, as you mentioned, being convicted. They're not bankruptcy lawyers, but they're starting to evaluate or think maybe bankruptcy is the solution. You're a trustee. You're the guy they're going to face eventually. Is there any advice you give to them now? They haven't even talked to a bankruptcy lawyer yet. Anything you can... Off the top of your head that you would advise
1: people it's really the people, not not the, the non lawyers,
0: lawyers anyone, anyone in that process, the lawyers not the, I'm talking about not the bankruptcy lawyers. I don't want you as trustee to give advice to the bankruptcy lawyers right. out there, but the others, the clients and the non bankruptcy lawyers. Uh,
1: be transparent if you're considering bankruptcy tell your lawyer everything so that they can properly evaluate and engage the benefits and the risks of filing a bankruptcy. I say to lawyers out there who are not bankruptcy lawyers, I really strongly recommend that you send a client to a bankruptcy lawyer because bankruptcy is a complex process. It is a process that requires you to bear your soul, so to speak. And if you do, and if you tell the truth, you're going to get the discharge, which you're looking for, but understand that there are costs to a bankruptcy, both mental and financial costs. And most times those costs are well worth the relief you're going to get at the end of the day, which is a discharge, but don't try to hide stuff from certainly not your attorney. Don't try to hide stuff from the trustee. Don't try to hide stuff from the bankruptcy court face your problems head on, tell the truth. And, you know, 98% of the time, everything's going to come out. Okay. For you.
0: Good advice. Stage
2: advice. Yeah. I try.
0: I, you know, I think a lot of, I think a lot of debtors out there and even not, you know, non-bankruptcy lawyers think, Oh, well you just, you don't have to disclose this creditor or that debt or that asset. And people feel like I want to, I've had this question to me before. Can I just file bankruptcy for this part? And it's not segmented like that, is it? And I think a lot of people don't really have an appreciation for the process and that you have sophisticated tools at your disposal. You're, you, know, you have experience. You've seen a number of debtors. And you're not just going to see an empty bank account and think that's the end of the analysis. You're going to get two years worth of bank statements and, or four years worth of bank statements and, and review what was there. Gee, there were a lot of assets there before. And now,
2: where'd they go? Well, before you, before you address that, right, that to add on to that, it's, we've gotten the question, Jeff, well, yeah, I have that asset, but what if I just give it to my uncle or my cousin or whatever, right? right? And, right. you know, we've had that question. Yeah. So, Yeah, we had, a, we had one client came in, she had <laughs> a massive,
0: massive wedding ring. I mean, it was one of the biggest diamonds I've ever seen. And she was in a partnership dispute and she wa- we were looking at filing and she thought she wouldn't disclose the ring. And first, besides the obvious fraud, I said to her, well, don't, don't people know about that thing? I mean, your primary adversary is your business partner. Isn't that person <laughs> aware of your, your ring? Aren't they going to want to know what happened to the ring? And some people just aren't really thinking through their, yeah. you know, they're actually lots of people aren't thinking through <laughs> the,
1: the ramifications of their actions, but particularly in bankruptcy. It becomes really pertinent. Gaming the system, you know, you can't say never, but gaming the system does not work. And especially today, modern technology, the tools that a panel trustee has available to him or her. I mean, I will tell you that almost certainly here in South Florida, every trustee runs background reports on every debtor. That is assigned to them. So, be those LexisNexis reports or Westlar, TLO, public records are easily accessible today. A trustee does an in depth dive because it's all done electronically um, using a lot of AI. So, it's not like you have to have people pouring over reports and spending endless hours. This information is readily available, and there are search engines and machines and algorithms that that find this stuff. I would also say that beware of social media. People love to tell the world what they're doing on social media. And guess yep. what? The trustee looks at those social media sites and I, I just, I can't tell you how many times we look at a social media site of a, of a debtor that lists no jewelry or very little in the way of assets. We pull up a, a social media site and there is a diamond Rolex or, or, or a fancy car. And invariably, um, the answer, of course, is the Rolex is a fake, or uh, I sold it to a pawn shop, but I don't have the receipt. But the point being that social media is 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 problematic for dishonest debtors because the people tend to show off a little bit on social media, and those yeah. chickens come home to
2: roost. And I would say, I would say that that applies not just in bankruptcy, but any case where there's a fiduciary or there's issues like that, right? Receiverships, which you've been involved in have been appointed, uh, sure. or represented receivers, their assignments for the benefit of creditors, the same kind of thing, right? Where people think that they can try to game the system and ultimately it catches up to them. And it turns out far worse uh, for them than, than perhaps if they just were uh, honest.
1: right. Without question. I mean, as Jeff mentioned, giving the ring to the uncle or or what have you, trustees, fiduciaries look at bank statements. They look at uh, financial statements. They say, hey, what happened to these assets? And then you're left with a choice under oath of either lying and committing bankruptcy fraud or telling the truth, which I highly recommend everybody do. And what results is that that person you gave the diamond ring to or the kid you gave uh, your assets to winds up getting sued by a a fiduciary and it's an unfortunate outcome and a much different outcome had you come clean from the beginning because all of these things, if you come in open kimono, so to speak, these things get resolved at the end of the day. There are negotiations, there are resolutions. Nobody, you know, no trustees I know, no fiduciaries want to go out and litigate. A bad settlement is often better a good lawsuit because it results in more net benefit and distribution to creditors at the end of the day, which is the goal of the system. But if a fiduciary is given no choice, then uh, litigation ensues. And yeah,
2: true. <laughs> We've been involved in a lot of that, all of us.
1: Oh, and we yep. agree. These I, are these
2: are basic life lessons. Be honest for That's sure. It. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. Great advice. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of these cases and we're all going to be those of us in the insolvency. We're going to be busy. Hopefully we can get some meaningful relief for some people that need it. Scott, thanks for your time today, man. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Scott. It's
1: great. Thanks guys. Bye. Stay safe.
0: For more information on this show and other resources, visit fastamron.com and connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at fastamron.